Welcome back to another Four Minutes of Threads. We're drawing close to the end of the film now. 17 minutes left, my screen tells me. I'd like to apply the Four Minutes treatment to another nuclear film, but there is obviously none which come close to the brilliance of Threads. The closest in terms of emotional impact would be, in my opinion, When the Wind Blows. Certainly it's not as well known as Threads, so if you haven't yet encountered it, either as film or graphic novel or radio play, then here's your chance. I think that's where we'll go after Threads, but it is it's bloody difficult. Um, where Threads fills you with dread, When the Wind Blows is full of almost unbearable sadness. But for now, Let's get back to Sheffield. Our last four minutes ended high on the moors with the arrival of Ruth's baby. Born in a barn, all alone, with no comfort, no shelter, no room at the inn, and an inhospitable world outside. So we know what that's comparing itself with. And if the baby Jesus was surrounded at his birth in the stable by gentle donkeys and quiet lambs, Ruth's baby enters the world to the vicious barking of an Alsatian chained up outside. But, and this is obviously rare for threads, there is a tiny sliver of hope and gladness in this birth scene. After the blood and the agony of the delivery, Ruth picks up her baby, counts all the tiny fingers and toes, and sobs with joy. Her baby has arrived safe and free from the terrible physical deformities she feared radiation would bring. Well, Ruth's joyful crying very quickly curdles into cries of desperation and despair. The initial flush of relief... Relief that the massive labour pains have stopped, relief that the baby is here, relief that the baby is whole and well. All that gets swallowed up in the familiar sweep of despair. She's allowed a tiny moment of joy, I suppose it's elemental and instinctive, but then reality presses down on her again and sweeps all away. Don't get too carried away, Ruth, it seems to say. Don't go dreaming of cribs and fleecy blankets and lullabies and don't picture yourself uh, strolling through the park with your new baby. Back to reality please, Miss Beckett. This moment reminds me of earlier in the film where we saw Ruth's mum, Mrs Beckett, knitting baby clothes for her coming grandchild. Tiny, soft cardigans being knitted on the sofa of a fine Victorian house on a lovely tree-lined street overlooking a park. A park with a pond in it where Ruth and her mother might have taken the baby in the pram. No doubt the middle-class Becketts would have bought Ruth a big fancy pram, one of those grand silver cross prams. I picture it being an elegant royal blue with silver trim. Nothing gaudy for the Becketts and Nothing as sentimental as pink for a girl or baby blue for a boy. No, uh, Ruth and her 
proud mother would go promenading along Rustling Road down into Encliffe Park with the baby in the fancy royal blue pram. No doubt Mrs Beckett would prefer it if scruffy Jimmy didn't come along, fresh from his work, which, please remember, is a bloody joinery, not a timber yard, still in his overalls and maybe with a curl of wood shavings clinging to his cuff. Ah, oh, but we know that Jimmy has a good heart, even if he is a bit immature, a bit sulky, a bit unfaithful. But we know that because his first thought when the bomb drops is Ruth. His only concern is to go tearing along the streets to reach Ruth. Got to get to Ruth, see if she's alright. Ah, but in our imagining of Ruth and her mother strolling in the park, well, that didn't happen, of course. The bomb never dropped. Jimmy never struggled along the streets trying to reach her. Instead, the tiny cardigans were knitted and were lovingly pulled on over chubby wee fists and arms and gently buttoned up and the Beckett ladies went out for a walk. And in this timeline, Jimmy shows himself to be a good lad, a grafter, loves his family and so he wins over the slightly snooty Beckett's. Maybe that's what Ruth was imagining in the tiny sliver of hope and relief that was granted to her. That's before reality came back. So up in the barn, Ruth lifts her baby, counts the fingers and toes, and then, just to plunge us even deeper into reality, she chews through the umbilical cord. There is no proud daddy here being invited to cut it. The cord is a pale lilac colour and it's very chewy and Ruth tugs at it with her teeth. Threads fanatics will know that a piece of locally manufactured Bassett's licorice was used here. The Bassett's factory asked Mick Jackson, sure, we can make you a big stretch piece for the film. What colour do you want it? And the reply was, uh, umbilical cord colour? A reminder here that there's an interview with Mick Jackson in my book, Attack Warning Red. Indeed, the whole final chapter is about nuclear war and the BBC. So speaking of the stretchy cord of lilac licorice, as I said, it was made by Bassett's, who were founded in Sheffield in the 1840s and still have a factory there today. It is situated in the north of the city, beside the Hillsborough district, where Jimmy and his family lived. And we know that Hillsborough gets it bad in threads. So, would there have been a heavy odour of burning licorice over that part of the city? Well, here's a small interesting fact about the Sheffield Bassett factory before we move on. They are most famous for their licorice all sorts, of course, but they also make jelly babies there. And the BBC tell me that jelly babies were, back in the Victorian era, initially called unclaimed babies. And this name is thought to have sprung from the practice in Victorian times of leaving unwanted babies on the steps of a church or hospital. So because these jelly babies were lying scattered in trays and sweet shops, for example, they got the name unclaimed babies. Quote here from the BBC story, The unclaimed baby's name was relatively short-lived 
and petered out when Bassets of Sheffield began producing the novelty-shaped candy in 1918. Archivists at Mondeley Limited, which took over in 2009, believe the sweets were re- rebranded as Peace Babies to mark the end of World War I, though the story has proved difficult to corroborate. So there we are, um, unclaimed babies to peace babies to jelly babies. So yes, when the when Hillsborough is hit in threads, did Michael and Mrs Kemp die with the scent of burning jelly babies in the nostrils? So, back to the film. Ruth holds her baby to her chest, sobbing and... She just gives way. She collapses back onto the straw with the wee thing clutched to her chest. This must be the the deepest point of her despair. Because now she has the awesome responsibility of caring for this little blighter. Caring for it, defending it, feeding it. And how on earth is she supposed to do that? And of course this responsibility means she is now tethered to this miserable world. She could no longer just crawl into a corner, curl up, give up and die. She is obliged to stay alive so that she can look after her child. As her mother reminded her back in the cellar, it's not just you now, love. Now, let's imagine what a weaker film might do here. Some Hollywood nonsense might show this as Ruth being reborn, motherhood changes her, it invigorates her, it floods her with vitality and energy. She becomes a tiger, a bear, fiercely defending her cub. But no, because we are watching a great film here. And so the next scene shows us Ruth's motherhood. And she doesn't bloody care. The baby cries and she ignores it. Because she has just been through a thermonuclear war. And so she is exhausted and drained and depressed. And no doubt suffering the terrible apathy of disaster syndrome. Not to mention the various physical hardships and horrors she's enduring. Hunger, thirst, lack of decent shelter and clean water. Susceptibility to illness and violence. So when the baby cries, a a Hollywood mom would run to it. Ruth ignores it because, well, reality. In this scene, Ruth is sitting in some kind of barn or stable in front of a mighty crackling fire. Others are with her, they're all gathered round the fire together. The heat must be glorious, but also eventually enervating. Everyone looks so dozy and exhausted and on the verge of sleep. So the baby cries somewhere in the background and is ignored. The siren could shriek again and it would be ignored. Nothing can stir this collection of hopeless, drained, battered people. Nothing can move them from the heat and the light of the fire. They might be cavemen again, sitting in the dark around this new warm and flickering light they've just created. And as long as the needs of hunger and warmth are being satisfied, then nothing else matters. There's no need for poetry and fine silk and table manners, or novels or symphonies or prayers. 
No need to tend to your baby, because everything is shrunk down to the gorgeous flicker of the flames. The lovely leaping heat of the fire, which keeps them warm and drives out the nuclear winter. And if a kid happens to be crying in the darkness somewhere, they would just let it cry. A feminist reading of this might say, well, Ruth is tending to her own needs. She needs to be fed and warm so that she can look after the kid and so she can do other things. Look after herself. Think of Sylvia Plath's famous poem, Ariel, where she says, The child's cry melts in the wall and I am the arrow. So in that poem, she's shrugging off her responsibilities here to become the arrow, something full of energy and direction and momentum, driving straight to her chosen task, which is poetry, art. So forget the kids, let it cry for a bit, for I am the arrow and can't be swayed from my duty to my poetry. But with Ruth, there is no such thing. There is no great art to be created, no great task she must attend to. She is ignoring the child's cry, not to go off and become a genius, but simply to slump here, dozy and dazed in front of the fire. So we're regressing, aren't we? We're going back to the caves. And just to further drive home our total regression here, our total deviation from all that is good and pure and traditional, the text on screen tells us that the date of this miserable gathering by the fire is Sunday, December 25th. It's Christmas Day. The camera then zooms in on a few of the hunched people by the fire. And we realise that they are not all as zombified as it initially seemed. Some of them are shaking, but is it because of the cold? Or is it some nervous affliction? Some trauma expressing itself in ticks and shudders? And one man crouches in the corner, and his eyes are flicking all round the barn. Something pops and snaps in the flame and the sudden sound makes his eyes dart. He's clearly poised for danger. He's ready to jump. And it seems that if anyone approached him with with an outstretched hand to see if he was okay, you get the feeling he would snap at them like a tiger. Some hints here then of the terrible psychological toll of the nuclear war. You can give this bunch of survivors all the heat and soup and blankets and medicine that you have but they are still going to be destroyed our next scene shows us exactly why our group were huddling so close to the fire the first winter the stresses of hypothermia epidemic and radiation fall heavily on the very young and the old. Their protective layers of flesh are thinner. In the first few winters, many of the young and old disappear from Britain. As the narrator speaks there, we see what looks like a raging blizzard. This is the first British winter after the bomb, and the first winter of the overarching nuclear winter. 
the wind is raging, the snow is piled high, and here and there there are humps and bumps in the snow, which are revealed as bodies just left to lie where they fell. As the narrator says, the very young and very old start to disappear from Britain. And of course we know that Ruth is in the midst of this, alone with a newborn baby. We move on. It's now March. The film is obviously speeding up, speeding up all the time. So we're now at March, ten months after the attack. And we see again the armed guards who are silently watching over the grain. They've popped up in previous scenes. And suddenly, outside, there's commotion. People have been, we assume, attempting to steal it. Looters, no doubt. Thieves. Criminals. Well, technically, yes, but morally, no, because one of them is Ruth. And as the looters scatter along the street, chased by armed guards and being traced from the air by helicopters, we see her run, terrified, with her baby clutched to her chest. Now, previously in the film, we saw some looters being rounded up, and one of them demanded, what choice have we got? Well, Ruth could shout the exact same question. Should she and her baby just lie down and starve? So this is the maddening logic of life after nuclear war. They will shoot you, kill you, if you steal food. So that means they will kill you if you try to stay alive. And I've spoken before in this podcast of how food after a nuclear war would surely be used as a bargaining tool. The authorities would have it. The population would need it. So, if you work, and if you behave yourselves, we will give you that food. And this would, hopefully, create a social contract. If I turn up and do an honest day's work, they will give me a decent helping of bread and soup, and me and my family will stay alive. So underneath all the hideous hardship, there is that one thing that you can cling to that the authorities will stand by this new social contract. They will feed me. They will permit and encourage life and recovery by the fair and careful allocation of food. But this dreadful scene in Thread, where they are chasing looters, shooting, hunting them in helicopters, this surely breaks any hope of cooperation between authorities and population. Because, as we also see in the war game, Your looters, your criminals who are stealing the food, they include ordinary wives and mothers. So everything is turned upside down. Looters, criminals, well, they're supposed to be young blokes, right? The young guys, the baddies, the rebels. And the authorities, well, they're supposed to be fair and interested in law and justice. But here they are, threatening to shoot down women with babies on their chests. So who is good now and who is bad? And what is the point of following the law if it's so upside down? Is there anything in Ruth's head at this point except to get food into the baby? Surely she's not concerned with ethics and morality and the consequences of breaking the law? Just get food for the kid. Just keep the baby alive. And if the authorities cannot appreciate that, then 
What hope is there for any kind of reconstruction in Britain? We move on to May, one year after the attack. We see a still black and white image of Sheffield, which looks like something from Hiroshima. Endless rubble, splintered buildings, black and twisted trees. We see a ruined factory interior, and in a very frightening image, some collapsed pylons. Pylons have always been quite scary to me. Maybe it's because of the way they seem to invade the landscape, stamping the way across hillsides like the devil stamped across Exeter. Or maybe it's because of my age. People of my generation will remember the very scary public information film from the 1980s involving pylons. Here's a clip. Suppose you never knew about high voltage electricity. You're crazy! He ignored the danger signs. Leave it there! He was stupid. He wouldn't come down. He didn't know electricity would go through the kite. It just jumped through thin air. Climbing pylons can kill. Don't take a chance with electricity. But yes, I find pylons creepy. And in this picture, they are sagging and snapped like huge monstrous animals with their necks broken. Of course, this image is an almost literal example of threads being snapped by the nuclear war. In this case, wires, of course. Those broken pylons and sagging wires aren't just a nightmarish image, but an obvious sign that the power has gone, another sign of the country's collapse. Then there follows a scene with a very powerful image from Threads. It's the scene where Ruth is bargaining for rats. Yes, out in the street, there's a grubby man with a carrier bag full of stiffened dead rats. And Ruth is having to bargain with him. She is frantically showing him what she has to trade. She's trying to get his attention, look at the the various objects, uh, bits of bric-a-brac that she's gathered over the past year and collected in a gateway carrier bag. But he's not interested. He's not even looking. But eventually, she manages to get his attention and he strokes her arm and she nods with her face cast down. The implication, of course is that she has been forced to sell her body in exchange for three dead rats from his bag. Another example of the social contract being broken. The government was supposed to feed us in exchange for work. But if Ruth is selling her body for three rats, then that idea has clearly broken down. The reason this is such a memorable scene is because the the frantic and desperate bargaining is taking place in front of a billboard advertising the insurance company Standard Life. The billboard is of course grimy and smoke damaged, but you can clearly still see the, the lovely, sunny, cheerful toddler on it in his blue romper suit. And the slogan says, Standard Life for all of your life. Now this billboard looming over them as they trade sex for rats is just so horrible, so discordant, that does not belong here. So Ruth and this man are making their terrible trade and 
it does seem as though we have some kind of marketplace going on. Because as they trade, people walk past. People come hobbling and limping past with bags and with carts. So people are obviously obtaining things, buying things, swapping and trading. And they're doing it, we presume, without the help or involvement of the authorities. Perhaps they have shrunk back to being nothing but murderous guards at food depots, whilst the real work and trade goes on here, in front of the standard life billboard. Everyone who walks past is carrying a bag or pulling a cart. And as one guy comes across the camera pulling a cart, I've just noticed something for the first time. The man who hobbles past with a cart, it looks like there's a dead dog slumped on top of it. He brings a horribly medieval touch to the scene as he's draped in a blanket which looks like an old cloak or robe. So he's wearing a cloak and hauling a dog or maybe a deer home and a cart for the fire. Again, regression. Back, back, back in time we go. But is that a dead dog on top of the cart? I called my husband, David, in to examine the guy pulling the cart. We paused it and we looked at the the image. He thinks that the thing curled on top of the cart is a, a brown blanket, all bunched up on top. I suppose that could make sense if it was an animal, a dead animal, a food source. Why would you leave it exposed on top of the car, in the sight of looters? So I put the question to Twitter with uh, some screenshots. And some people thought it was a fabric bag. Now that too would make sense. If you think back to the Soviet era and their infamous shortages, it was common practice to always carry a string bag with you, wherever you went, because you never knew what you might be able to pick up. You might just be going out to a friend's house, no need for a shopping bag, but there was always the chance that you might pass an otherwise empty shop, something which was stripped bare this morning, but has suddenly received a load of bread or oranges or whatever. You just never knew what you might find when you were out and about, so always carry a bag with you. So some people on Twitter suggested it's a fabric bag, crumpled up. David thinks it's a blanket. I think it's a dead dog. But then there's also the question, well, what is the blanket or bag or dog lying on? Because there's a long bundle wrapped in white beneath this object, which could be a body wrapped in polythene. Could be. Perhaps our medieval guy in his cloak is following the Protect and Survive guidance to bury your own dead in the garden. But, as we've discussed before, and as I mentioned in my book, the guidance in Protect and Survive doesn't apply if you're a a working-class person living in, for example, a high-rise flat. I used to live in one of them in Mary Hill here in Glasgow, and there certainly was no garden, and there there was nothing outside except concrete. So maybe this guy has no garden in which to bury his his wife or his child. So he's taking them away in a cart to a nearby field or other designated mass burial site. 
I've seen Sheffield Council's list of proposed grave sites and they included country parks and golf courses. There were plenty of options in Sheffield for our guy to bury his dead. And what an obedient citizen he is, obeying the Protect and Survive advice. If anyone dies while you are kept in your fallout room, move the body to another room in the house. Label the body with name and address and cover it as tightly as possible in polythene, paper, sheets or blankets. Tie a second card to the covering. The radio will advise you what to do about taking the body away for burial. If, however, you have had a body in the house for more than five days and if it is safe to go outside, then you should bury the body for the time being in a trench or cover it with earth and mark the spot of the burial. So that's the end of this uh, four minutes of thread segment. If you're listening to this on the day of uh, upload, which is Monday 24th of July 2023, then can I remind you that my book, Attack Warning Red, How Britain Prepared for Nuclear War, goes out this week on Radio 4 as Book of the Week. It goes out twice a day, every day, starting 9.45, and they will read uh, a 15-minute segment of the book, different segment every day, and I am so proud to have it going out on Radio 4. So try and catch that if you can, if you have access to the BBC. It will be on broadcast radio, of course, or iPlayer or the BBC Sounds app. And if you listen to it and like it, I hope you'll consider buying a copy of the book. So thank you for listening, and I'll be back next week with another episode. <laughs>